A little after 7 p.m. on October 1, 1893, Father Ferdinand Grimaud braced himself against a window in his Catholic church as chaos swirled around him. A massive hurricane had slammed into the small peninsula of Chenier Caminata just after sunset. Now, a huge storm surge over 15 feet high lashed against the southern Louisiana shoreline. Entire homes were toppled by wind gusts exceeding 115 miles per hour. The Catholic Church, his house of faith, seemed like a decent building in which to ride out the hurricane. But then a huge gust tore away most of the church roof, bringing Father Ferdinand face to face with the storm. The Catholic priest ducked against the stone wall as he watched the full force of Mother Nature sweeping over the isolated fishing village. Under the furious sounds of wind-blown destruction, Father Ferdinand heard the cries of agony and fear coming from his parishioners left helpless in the storm. They were the voices of hardy fishermen, of fearful wives, and terrified children being swept out to sea. Father Ferdinand prayed to God to be merciful to the poor souls who were about to meet their fate in the storm. He desperately hoped he would not be one of them. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Thursday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. This is our second of two episodes on the Chenier Caminata Hurricane of 1893, a powerful cyclone that devastated the coastal communities around New Orleans and the Mississippi Delta. Last week, we followed the storm as it developed in the Western Caribbean Sea and gained strength moving steadily across the Gulf of Mexico. We met the fishermen of Chenier Caminata and the surrounding areas, who made their livelihood from the very Gulf waters that helped to fuel the deadly hurricane. This week, we'll track the storm as it makes landfall, bringing extreme winds and a storm surge that wiped out Chenier Caminata and flooded the region. We'll explore the heroic actions that saved lives that night and the storm's lasting impact on the community. There were close to 1,500 people living in Chenier Caminata in October 1893. The diverse group of fishermen and their families settled along the Gulf Coast to supply fresh catches of fish, oysters, and shrimp to the New Orleans markets, about 55 miles inland. Grand Isle, their neighbor to the east, was a more developed tourist destination known for its beaches and resorts. Both faced the worst of the storm when it struck on the night of the first. Throughout the day, the hurricane churned slowly across the Gulf of Mexico, until it crossed paths with a cold front pushing down from southern Louisiana. This redirected the cyclone toward the coast and amplified the storm's energy. The first squalls blew in from the southeast around 7 p.m., riding the outer edge of the storm's counterclockwise rotation. These gusts rapidly pushed seawater toward the Mississippi Delta and Louisiana coast. Within a matter of minutes, the little island was inundated with a rising tide and powerful winds. By 7.30 p.m., enormous waves nearly reached the seaside home of fisherman André Gilbeau, 
lashing against the walls and seeping inside. Meanwhile, rain leaked through the porous roof, soaking everything inside. Andre and his family hunkered down within the shaking walls of their humble hut. He desperately went over options with his younger brother as the storm raged around them. The roof was splintering and ripping apart in the wind. The water just outside their door was rising steadily. Time was running out. As the full force of the hurricane bore down on their tiny village over the next hour, wind gusts reached over 120 miles per hour and pushed the storm surge higher. Fishing huts were disappearing as the waves moved inland. Andre's home was reduced to nothing more than a few wooden panels after the roof was completely removed in the gale. It was time to act. Andre knew his fishing boat was their only option. Gathering his family, they pushed through the rising tide, already flooding the neighborhood in bone-chilling water. Andre's boat was tied up only a few yards from their home, but it took an agonizingly long time to reach it through the blasting wind and rain. Andre and his family reached the small vessel and quickly piled inside. The waves tossed the little boat, but the anchor line held. Andre shielded his eyes from the salt spray and wind-blown debris. He watched the last of his home get demolished and swept away. He prayed the anchor would hold them in place long enough to ride out the storm. For almost two hours, the storm ravaged Chenier Caminata without letting up. By about 10 p.m., waves peaked at nearly 20 feet, swallowing the sandy peninsula and dragging victims and debris into the swift ocean current. While the wooden fishing huts were no match for the powerful sea, the recently constructed Catholic church withstood the brunt of the storm longer than most. The stone foundation of the church was stronger than many of the homes, which were typically built on wooden stilts. As a result, the structure held firm, while many homes erected on frail supports were ravaged by the wind and waves. Many families likely fled their crumbling homes, hoping to seek refuge in the church. From the upper floor of the church, Father Ferdinand heard terrified shouts and the incessant bell ringing above him in the howling wind. Just beyond the church walls, the hungry waves seemed to swallow everything in their path. Besides the fragile homes that were savagely ripped apart, boats were flipped and pulled under the current. Oil lamps tossed by the storm ignited small fires across the village. The crackling flames fizzled out as they were smothered by the squalls and frothing waves. Spiraling rain bands, huge walls of precipitation that extend hundreds of miles from the center of a hurricane, pounded Grand Isle, the popular tourist destination east of Chenier Caminata. While most of the summer guests had already left the island's resorts and hotels for the season, there were still about 300 residents on the night of October 1st. At the Grand Isle Wharf just offshore, Captain McSweeney and the six crewmen aboard the steamship SS Joe Weber were heaving up and down in the tumultuous current. The chains tying their vessel to the dock were straining against the endless onslaught of wind and waves. The phosphorescent shimmer of the churning water made it look as though the ship was plunging into an abyss of fire. The steamer crested a massive incoming wave stressing the lines almost to their breaking point. Then a sudden gust of wind tore away the main cabin. Captain McSweeney frantically gathered the crew. 
He told them it was only a matter of time before the storm took out their vessel. If they stayed aboard the steamship, they would have no escape if the ship broke apart. He ordered the men to prepare one of the emergency sailboats, called a yawl, stored out on deck. They would make for the Grand Isle Hotel, as its lights were still barely visible on the shoreline a few hundred yards away. While the crew of the Joe Weber was making their decision to load onto the sailboat, the hurricane was slowly moving northeast. Around 10.30 p.m., the massive storm system slammed into New Orleans and the lakes and waterways above Barataria Bay, with wind speeds reaching 130 miles per hour. The brush with the barrier islands of Chenier Caminata and Grand Isle did little to slow the storm's momentum. 15-foot surges were amplified by the Mississippi Delta, pushing water into the marshland around the city. The sharp angle formed by the mouth of the river with the rest of the coast created a funnel that increased these tidal surges. The southeastern gale piled water into Lake Bourne and Lake Pontchartrain. The narrow waterway between them, called the Rigolese, became a maelstrom. The cargo ship Alice McGuigan and her crew were trapped in the Rigolese as the storm hit. The captain, a man named Delavier, knew the location put the freighter in an extremely vulnerable position with little protection from the storm. He had tried to find a safe stretch of shoreline, but the swelling waves flooded into the narrow channel and tossed the out-of-control ship like a ragdoll. Around 10.45 p.m., a powerful tidal surge in the Rigolese lifted the Alice McGuigan and flipped the entire ship on her side. Captain Delivier and his crew were thrown into the rising waves of the flooded channel. Their vessel was ripped apart as the crew were swept underwater and carried away by the current. Back on Grand Isle, two sailors were caught outside in the raging tempest. They chose to make for a small cove that would offer protection from the storm. As they launched their small skiff around 11 p.m., the wind suddenly shifted directions as the rotating hurricane moved over the island. When the hurricane had made landfall, the initial southeastern winds had pushed water in from the gulf. But now, as the rotating storm changed the angle of the wind hitting the coast, the gusts forced water back out to sea. This abrupt shift in the tidal direction from the coast collided with the storm surge coming in from the gulf. The two huge rolling masses of water piled together to form a massive wave over 30 feet high. And with the enormous force of the hurricane moving inexorably northeast, the wave was pushed toward the shore of Grand Isle. Through flashes of lightning, the two sailors in the skiff saw the 30-foot wall of water heading right for them and the island they had just left behind. The populated island of Grand Isle was only moments away from inundation. Coming up, the massive hurricane brings a renewed attack as it continues inland. Now, back to the story. When the hurricane struck on the evening of October 1st, 1893, the small barrier islands of Chenier Caminata and Grand Isle received the brunt of the storm's initial impact. The hurricane brought over four hours of sustained, powerful southeastern winds over 120 miles per hour. A 
15-foot tidal surge swept over the islands and lakes around the Mississippi Delta. The entire coast was under as much as five feet of water. A few minutes after 11 p.m., the rotational winds created a massive 30-foot wave that swelled toward the shore of Grand Isle. Two sailors hoping to escape the storm scrambled in horror as the wave crashed over them, ripping apart their tiny skiff and swallowing them into a dark abyss. The huge wave continued across Grand Isle, destroying many of the resorts and hotels on the island. The proprietor of the Grand Isle Hotel, a 70-year-old man named Captain Krantz, was trapped when one of his cottages collapsed on top of him. As the water flooded around him, Krantz clung to a wooden beam as he was washed away in the current. The massive wave continued a destructive sweep across the coast. The chains keeping the steamship Joe Weber tied to the wharf at Grand Isle were ripped from their posts. The ship was at the mercy of the storm as it abruptly lost its mooring. The unanchored steamship was swept out into Barataria Bay. Huge slabs of debris swirling in the water slammed against the ship. The entire vessel shuddered, creaking and moaning from the strain on the hull. Between 11 and 11.30 p.m., the silver church bell on Chenier Caminata was suddenly ringing much more loudly. The rain and wind had died down, and the bell's toll reverberated through the still air. The victims, still hiding in shelter, emerged into an eerie quiet. Father Ferdinand described it as a sudden, ominous lull. But they were still surrounded on all sides by dense black clouds. It seemed like the entire island was at the bottom of a gigantic well. The circular area at the center of a hurricane, known as the eye, is often between 20 to 40 miles wide and clear of the wind and rain spiraling around it. It's an area of calm in an otherwise turbulent storm system. The science is complex and still not fully agreed upon, but it's believed that the eye is formed by a combination of high wind speed near the center and centrifugal force. The National Weather Service explains that, quote, the strong rotation of air around the cyclone balances inflow to the center, causing air to ascend about 10 to 20 miles from the center, forming the eye wall. The centrifugal force pushes these winds outward, and their momentum creates the spiral-shaped vortex that spins counterclockwise around the center of the storm. Essentially, the rotating wind blows itself upward into a tube of calm air. The eye of the hurricane gave its victims a chance to catch their breath, but they had to act quickly. The fishermen launched any boats that had survived the initial onslaught in a frantic search for survivors. Father Ferdinand used his vantage point from the church steeple to call out the locations of people in need of rescue. He recognized a young boy clinging to a piece of floating debris drifting with the current. He shouted down to the men in their rescue boats, directing them to the boy. The men rowed desperately toward the child and his outstretched hand. Father Ferdinand leaned out the window, scanning the horizon. Then, with little warning, the storm surged forth with renewed fury. The rescuers and the boy disappeared behind a thick veil of wind-blown rain. As Father Ferdinand later recounted, the storm burst again with terrific violence and carried off the little fellow to be seen no more. The eye had lasted less than 20 minutes. The wind quickened, this time blowing from the northwest. 
The backside of the hurricane, still fueled by the warm Gulf waters, slammed into Chenier Caminata just before midnight. First to hit was the eye wall, a ring of towering thunderclouds around the center with the most severe weather and winds. The eye wall fuels the storm as the low pressure around it rapidly pulls moisture into the air. Whatever survived the initial southeast squalls was now ripped back in the opposite direction. This also had the effect of shifting the surface current back out to sea. The storm's counterclockwise rotation meant the wind was now blowing from the northwest. Imagine a spinning top. Each side moves in the opposite direction as it rotates. Like that spinning top, the wind on the other side of the hurricane was moving in the opposite direction. Instead of piling water further inland with the tidal surge, everything was dragged back out into the gulf. Debris and vegetation, along with hundreds of dead bodies and helpless victims, were sucked up in the current. Father Ferdinand could only watch the horrible procession of bodies pulled out to sea, helpless to intervene. He was certain this second pummeling would destroy the island. He later recounted this moment of the hurricane, saying, trees were snapped like reeds, houses were wrecked in an instant, and soon, Chenier ceased to exist. Grand Isle was just a few minutes behind what was happening at Chenier Caminata. With only moments of calm left while they were in the eye, Captain McSweeney directed the six crewmen of the SS Joe Weber toward the Grand Isle Hotel cottages nearest the shore. No sooner had they departed in the tiny yawl that the storm lashed out again. The crew watched as the sudden wind rolled their 100-foot steamship like it was a toy boat. The crew struggled to keep their small sailboat afloat in the turbulence. The Joe Weber was swallowed in the hungry waves of Barataria Bay and dragged underwater. Pieces of the ship broke off in the massive waves and rolled toward the retreating crew. Captain McSweeney and his men struggled through the darkness in their little boat. Water and rain lashed against their faces, blinding them. They had to abandon their plan of trying to make it to the hotel. Captain McSweeney directed the crew to a large oak tree nearby, its branches extending out above the tide. Suddenly, a powerful gust caught their skiff and lifted it into the air. For a moment, they were airborne. Then the boat flipped and slammed back into the sea. The crew scrambled for the surface, gasping for air. The men latched onto whatever floating debris they could find. Captain McSweeney fought against the swirling riptide to swim to the oak tree. Most of the trunk was already underwater, but the captain managed to pull himself up into the exposed branches. One by one, he helped his crew up out of the water and into the tree, where they huddled against the roaring gale. The winds from the eye wall were spiking once again as the hurricane crashed into the buildings on Grand Isle with increasing fury. Debris whirled in the air as the tide swept back over the island and out to the gulf. It was now after midnight on Monday, October 2nd. The hurricane continued moving northeast, hugging the coastline and washing over the lakes and waterways east of New Orleans. The city was flooded from the initial storm surge but the eye wall remained to the south. The storm spared the city and instead demolished the nearby lakeshore communities. Many of the boathouses and summer homes along Lake Pontchartrain and Lake Bourne were completely destroyed. 
Dance halls and restaurants were swept into the surging lakes. The lighthouse at Lake Bourne sustained significant damage, and its roof was sheared off in the powerful squalls. A second lighthouse, built on the southern side of Lake Pontchartrain, withstood the storm surge and provided refuge for over 200 people. Originally built of wood in 1832, the structure was reinforced with brick in 1855 and withstood the gale. The female lighthouse keeper had acted quickly to gather her shoreline neighbors inside the safety of the station. The windowless chamber was dark and cramped, lit by only a few weak lanterns. Terrified mothers held their whimpering children close as battering winds and huge waves slammed into the walls around them. By 1 a.m., the storm was moving over the Mississippi coast toward Alabama and growing weaker. But strong winds were still blowing and heavy rain persisted. The L and N Railroad, which had tracks that ran from New Orleans to Mobile, Alabama, saw significant damage over its 130 miles. The telegraph lines that followed the route also suffered greatly. Many of the railroad bridges in the region were destroyed, and the rails along the bayou were ripped from their ties. Around 3 a.m., the storm pivoted farther inland near the Mississippi-Alabama border. It lost momentum as it passed over Mobile, though it still left devastation in its wake. The system made its way farther east, weakening to a tropical storm as it left behind the warm coastal water, eventually petering out over North Carolina 48 hours later. Meanwhile, back along the shattered coast in Louisiana, the last few hours of darkness between 3 a.m. and sunrise on October 2nd were quiet. As survivors emerged into the faint dawn light, they found themselves in a new world. The entire peninsula was still underwater. Most vegetation was gone, torn out at the root. A few standing stilts marked former homes like a graveyard. Bodies were strewn among the wreckage and sandbanks. The survivors had stepped out into an apocalyptic nightmare. Coming up, the coastal communities around New Orleans contend with the death and destruction left behind. Now, back to the story. One of the deadliest hurricanes in American history struck the coast of southern Louisiana on the night of October 1, 1893. By the time calm weather had returned to the region, it had left a deep scar across 500 miles of coastline. At Chenier Caminata, where the hurricane first made landfall, there had been nearly eight hours of absolute chaos and fury. 125 mile per hour winds wiped out the fishing village. Storm surges over 15 feet above sea level washed away homes, boats, vegetation, and bodies. Most of the island was still under three feet of water. Around six in the morning, three men arrived at the church on Chenier Caminata. They were going around the village in search of survivors. They propped a ladder up against the second-story window to rescue those inside. Father Ferdinand descended into water up to his waist. He took in the scenes of destruction all around. The entire island was submerged and silent. According to accounts at the time, the storm left only four buildings standing on Chenier Caminata. The Catholic Church would later collapse, joining the ruins that littered the ground. 
The remaining structures were all packed with terrified families with nowhere else to go, and now nowhere to return to. Those who emerged from the storm found their homes washed away, their boats in ruins, and their loved ones gone forever. Andre Gilbeau and most of his family had drowned when their boat overturned and pulled them down with it. Their bodies washed ashore not far from where they had cast off into the maelstrom. But Andre's brother washed up alive. Heartbroken, he recalled a premonition Andre made before the storm arrived and how he had correctly identified its victims at their dinner table. Father Ferdinand led the search for survivors on the island, but it quickly became clear it would become more of a collection of the dead. The body count continued to rise. On Grand Isle, the crew of the SS Joe Weber descended from the oak tree where they had taken shelter. The water was up to their waists and filled with floating debris, but the crew made for an old shack that was still standing. Captain McSweeney and his men started clearing away rubble to get to the lone building. While searching for Captain Krantz, they discovered that he was, in fact, alive. The storm had carried him more than 25 feet from where he was knocked out. Krantz was injured, but he was eventually helped back to what remained of his property. Nearly half of the hotel buildings were destroyed. In his 15 years of living on the island, he had never seen so much devastation. Captain Krantz estimated the cost to his property from the storm was $100,000, almost $3 million today when adjusted for inflation. After learning of Krantz's fate, the crew of the SS Joe Weber returned to the wharf. The tide was receding, and they were eager to learn the fate of their vessel. They found the steamship on high ground 250 feet inland, broken clean in half. 30 people were killed on Grand Isle that night, but many more lives would have been lost had the resort island been filled with guests. All of the hotels faced significant damage. The two sailors who were swept up in the 30-foot wave miraculously survived and washed up on Grand Isle. Despite surviving the storm, the situation was dire for the residents of Grand Isle and Chenier Caminata. The isolation of these coastal communities left them desperate for supplies, food, and clean water. Everything they owned was swept away by the storm. It would take two whole days for the full extent of destruction to reach New Orleans before any help was sent. On Chenier Caminata, the death toll was close to 500 and still rising, many of them women and children. The entire day was spent collecting and burying the dead, but without the necessary materials or tools to build coffins, they were forced to dig mass graves. Long trenches were scooped in the sand using broken boards and sticks. Bodies were piled high, with up to 30 in each mass grave, but the number of dead continued to rise, and the stench of waterlogged corpses made the situation almost unbearable. When the exhausted gravediggers finally stopped at nightfall on October 2nd, there were still 400 decomposing bodies waiting to be buried. The survivors awoke on October 3rd, dehydrated and in desperate need of food and water. Over 600 people were trapped on an isolated peninsula with no food, few seaworthy boats, and no way to communicate with the outside world. 
they were completely cut off and quickly sapping their meager supplies. There was some relief when a ship arrived around midday. It was a local lugger, a type of small sailing ship returning from New Orleans. It didn't carry much more than a few blocks of ice, usually used to preserve fresh catches of fish. Now the ice was melted and mixed with a small amount of salt water to quench the thirst of the survivors. Those on the island went about tending to their community, but the loss was almost insurmountable. As Father Ferdinand recounted, most of the inhabitants of the Chenier are very poor people, fishermen whose only worldly possessions were their huts and their boats. These they have lost, and how will they be able to earn their living? Who will come to their aid and help them to rebuild their humble abodes? Even the small Chenier Caminata Cemetery was flooded and ripped apart. Headstones were destroyed and graves washed away. Desiccated corpses were found days later. All told, 779 residents of Chenier Caminata were killed in the hurricane, over half the population. In the lakeshore area, the capsized Alice McGuigan washed up just a few miles from where it originally departed. It was discovered days later by a mail boat making its way through Lake Bourne. Captain Delavier and his crew were never found. The Alice McGuigan was only one of at least 17 ships destroyed in the storm, and many of the captains and their crews were lost to the sea. Along with damage to the ports and rail lines, almost all shipping was affected, rippling out to the surrounding cities along the Mississippi River. Over the following days, the search for bodies continued across the islands and marshes crushed by the storm. With areas still submerged and many graves already full, there was nowhere left to bury the dead. The survivors on Chenier Caminata resorted to funeral pyres, using the lumber that washed back on shore. Others who survived the storm still faced hardship and death. Vessels and ships continued to find bodies clinging to doors and floating debris, some as far away as Pensacola, Florida. These victims had survived the chaos of the hurricane, only to die from dehydration and the elements keeping them stuck at sea. The total death count was estimated to be over 2,000 people, making the storm the fifth deadliest hurricane in American history. Damage was estimated to cost a total close to $5 million in 1893, over $143 million in modern currency. A few more days passed before the full extent of the storm's destruction would be known beyond the coastline. As one newspaper headline reported on October 7, 1893, almost a week after the hurricane hit, the settlement of Chenier Caminata has been swept out of existence. But it wasn't all bad news. Survivors were appearing in random places along the shoreline and in the marshland, a mother was spotted from a train wading through chest-high water. She was carrying two small children under her arms with a cloth-wrapped baby held between her teeth. Another survivor was found eight days after the storm on a makeshift raft off the south pass of the Mississippi River. He was over 50 miles away from his home on Chenier Caminata. The first relief boats from New Orleans arrived on Wednesday, October 4th three days after the storm hit. Many were ships returning from the city to their home ports in Chenier and Grand Isle. These sailors were stunned by what they found upon their return. 
Their homes and families were gone. Their lives had been simply washed away. They were forced to decide whether to rebuild or relocate. Despite some attempts to rebuild, Chenier Caminata never fully recovered to its former glory. But almost 22 years to the day after the 1893 hurricane hit, the region faced another brutal Category 4 storm. The New Orleans Hurricane of 1915 wiped out any progress of rebuilding the island. The rapidly eroding coastline along the Gulf of Mexico essentially put the entire peninsula underwater, making it almost impossible to resettle. Many of the survivors abandoned the area. It wasn't just people from Chenier Caminata and Grand Isle, but countless other fishing communities suffered similar fates. Oyster Bayou, a town of 300 people to the west of Chenier Caminata, saw its population disappear after the storm. In most cases, the survivors remained close enough to the coast to continue their seafaring livelihoods, and many of their descendants carried on this tradition for generations. On October 1, 1993, Relatives of the survivors of the 1893 hurricane gathered to observe and remember the storm's centennial anniversary. They met at a cemetery believed to hold one of the few remaining mass graves. They were strangers who shared a common history, having heard stories of that terrible night passed down through generations. In this way, they carried on the legacy and communal bonds set down by their ancestors 100 years earlier. Because of erosion along the Louisiana coast, Chenier Caminata will soon disappear entirely without the help of conservation projects, a footnote in the history of terrible hurricanes to hit the region. Grand Isle remains a popular summer destination with a full-time population of almost 1,300 people, but it remains in a vulnerable position, facing a tropical storm or hurricane roughly every three years. The cycle of destruction and rebuilding continues to this day. The Chenier Caminata hurricane of 1893 showed how devastating tropical storms in this region could be and the vulnerabilities of settling along the coast. Many fishermen and their families paid a terrible price by choosing to live so close to the sea. But for most, that risk was part of their livelihood. As long as there's money to be made at the seashore, there will be those who continue to live in the area, risking destruction and death with each hurricane season. After all, it's only a question of when, not if, the next life-altering hurricane will strike. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Scott Stronach with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Greg Cohen with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard. <laughs>